everybody, and thanks for joining us for another week of the Rec Poker Podcast. You know you're in for a treat when you hear that tune, because it's time to listen to me and my poker friends talking about this game that we love so much. If you don't know what Rec Poker is about, we're a group of enthusiastic amateur players who love poker. We love studying together because poker is fun, but it's more fun when you win. So we try and learn along. We learn from each other's mistakes. We share our strategies with each other. And most of what we do is free. It's a largely volunteer organization. So it's really important that we thank our sponsors, the Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack, and Casino, and Mark Prashan over at Website Amp. And of course, we also have to thank our members of the Wrecking Crew, the core team of wizards that come in every week and uh, share this experience with me, uh, creating our videos, uh, adding our thoughts to the podcast, that sort of thing. And if you want to find out more about the Wrecking Crew, you can go to rec.poker slash crew, or you can just listen up because you're about to meet a couple of them here tonight. Hi, I'm Eric Jin. I am um, Binkley on the Rec Poker forums and at Rec Binkley on Twitter. And I am Kim Kilroy. I am PatBat33 or Fergie56 in the home game. PatBat or PatBat33 everywhere else. And can barely get a word in edgewise with Tim. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We're working on that, that though, aren't we, Kim? Uh, and in case I haven't mentioned it, my name is Jim Reed, Bluffsterini in the home game and at Rec Poker Jim on Twitter. Uh, one of my favorite experiences as a host of this podcast is we get to do these chats editions of the podcast where we talk to amazing people in the poker world and get to know their story. Every once in a while, we have so much fun, we beg them to come back onto the forums edition like tonight and talk some strategy with us. So Carlos Welch was one of those amazing people that said, yeah, man, I would love to come back on the show and talk some strats. So we got Carlos Welch in the house. Carlos, thank you so much for coming back on the Rec Poker Podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, if folks don't know Carlos, I don't know why you wouldn't at this point in your career, um, but Carlos is the co-host of the Thinking Poker podcast. He's the uh, brains behind Mediocre Coaching. Uh, you can find a lot of his insights and videos and uh, uh, premium podcasts and stuff at knitcast.com. And we're going to talk about some of that stuff later on. But um, Carlos uh, offered to come back. He knows the theme of the month in September is defending against CBETs. And this is an area that it's uh, an uncomfortable position to be in. People see bet at a high frequency. So we find ourselves in this position a lot. And I just thought we could pick your brain a bit, Carlos, and find out sort of what should we be thinking about to make this easier for recreational players like us? Definitely, definitely. But before we get into that, I should say it's mediocre poker coaching. It sounds, it, it sucks without the rhyme in there. Okay, <laughs> it's good call. Thank you. And is that is that mediocrepokercoaching.com, Carlos, or do they have to get at you through your Twitter or something? How do they get involved with you? Definitely through my Twitter, uh, which is Hip Hop 101 Trivia. Um, or they can just search um, Carlos Welch Trivia on Google. I'll come up there as well. Um, but yeah, I used to have that website, but I, I don't use the mediocre poker coaching.com anymore. I just like the fact that that rhymes. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's important to get the poker between the mediocre and the coaching. All right, you got it. And you can tell Carlos is one of those traditionalists. He's using that hip hop trivia Twitter handle that he's had for a long time since before he got into poker. I respect that. I respect that because you're you're definitely more involved in poker these days than you are in hip hop trivia. Uh, would you say that's true? Yeah, yeah. And speaking of like, you know, reusing things and like, you know, um, being cheap. Um, yeah. The reason thrifty, I don't thrifty. Thrifty. The reason I don't have the website anymore is because I find out that you, I found out you can use um, tiny URL 
and like Google Docs as a website. So basically, if you go to my Twitter, if you go to my Twitter profile, you'll see a link that says tinyurl slash Carlos Welch. You <laughs> click that link, it'll take you to a Google Doc that I've basically set up as a website. So I don't have nice. to pay any hosting fees. <laughs> nice. That's amazing. Carlos is definitely a man after my own heart. And um, if you're not familiar with Carlos's story about uh, playing poker in a van, you know, um, really keeping costs down in a number of admirable ways, uh, you can listen to our previous edition of the Rec Poker Podcast, where we've had him on and talked about that at length, as well as a number of other poker podcasts and uh, blog articles and that sort of thing. Carlos is uh, a well-known figure for his thrifty ways here on, it, you know, we're, we're both uh, life nits. And I think that's just yes. because we know the value of a dollar, my man. And like, right. you know, it, it, it it doesn't come in so easy. It shouldn't go out so easy is the way I like to think about it. You know, let's, 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 let's conserve those dollars. Um, yes. All right. Well, so here we are, uh, the theme of the month, defending against CBETs. Um, we're going to do one episode right now where we talk about sort of the general concepts behind why people are CBETing into us and what we should be thinking about in those moments. And then uh, we'll come back again for a quick conversation next week, going over a specific hand where these, uh, these uh, concepts are applied. So, um, you know, our audience is mostly recreational players. So a C-bet is just any time the player who took the aggressive action pre-flop now continues their uh, their aggression on the flop. And we'll just keep it real simple here and talk about flop C-bets like that. So if you if someone opens in late position and you're in the blinds and you call then uh, they have the, if you check on the flop, they can see bet continue continuation bet by continuing their aggression. And uh, it's kind of a, a, it's a, it's a cliche. It's a tool that people use a lot because people fold a lot to see bets. And, and the reason they do is because the person who made the previous aggression, the, the aggressive act on the previous street has an uncapped range. And when you make the passive action by calling, you've kind of capped your range. So on a lot of boards, it's going to come out where you don't make a hand. And when someone represents strength with that bet, you're kind of forced to fold and move on. Um, that's the the nuts and bolts of it at a real basic level. But Carlos, um, what, what else should we be thinking about? And sort of what do you think about when you're in a position where you're facing a C-bet on the flop? Again, I know there's so many different variations we could talk about, different boards and stack sizes and positions and that kind of thing, but down to the real fundamentals, kind of what's it all about in your mind? Um, I think it's going to be about understanding that the pre-flop raiser usually has the range advantage, and that is going to entitle them to probably win more than their fair share of pots here. But because you get a chance to see this flop for a discounted price because you already have the big blind in. And if we're talking tournaments, there's even a better price due to antes. Um, you still get to um, call and see this flop. And so you don't have to win this pot as often as the player with the range advantage, but you do need to try to win as much as your fair share as you can. So I would say don't, sweat it too much in these spots. Um, but some of the hands that are kind of obvious to play, um, most people probably would do well for just playing those more aggressively. So a good example would be if you're in a situation where although the opener has 
um, a stronger pre-flop range, sometimes you get a board that's better for your range in the big blind than, than the previous player. And if they made the mistake of betting too much on that board, you can just do a lot of check raising with hands that um, interact somewhat built, somewhat well with that board. And I think a lot of people end up just calling and like a good example would be um, hands with backdoor equity. So you have three to a flush or three to a straight or preferably both. A lot of times people call with that sort of hand and say, oh, let's see if I can pick up a draw on the turn. No, that's a good spot to raise if your opponent his, his primary advantage is that he has overpairs in his range that you don't because obviously he's going to open aces and kings, but you would probably um, three bet those. So given that you didn't three bet, you don't have those in his, on your range. So if you're on a board where those overpairs aren't necessarily super strong anymore because the board is kind of like middling, connected, and suited, that's a good time where you can uh, overrealize your equity by – raising some of those backdoor draws as a bluff. If you get a board that is more in your opponent's wheelhouse, say like a dry ace high board, um, you don't have to fight too hard for those boards. If you have something that connect with the board, then it's, you generally just want to call. You don't want to do too much raising on those sort of boards. Um, but yeah, it gets tricky when you get that middling, that the board that's better for your range. That's when you have to fight a little bit harder. When it's his board, you can just, play the hands almost play themselves a bit and i'll let eric and kim jump in if they have any questions or comments as we go um but the one thing that as we've been studying this spot more and more this month in rec poker um the one thing that's jumped out to me is the really important thing about it is the board texture which is as you've described it as well here carlos um and so and and so can you just give a couple examples of some boards that are good for the open razor and then a couple examples of some boards that are good uh, for the caller? Right. So um, this is going to be a little bit different if depending on whether we're talking about cash games or tournaments, mm. but I, I'm more experienced with tournaments. So I'll speak from that point of view. Um, so generally it's going to be boards where you have um, cards between like say eight and four, mm-hmm. you're going to have a lot more straights and two pairs than the opener would. So let's say a board like eight, six, five. If someone opens, they're very unlikely to have eight, five. But in a tournament, you would defend eight, five suited and maybe even offsuit depending on where they open from, um, as well as the straights and the other two pairs and even top pair. You should have more top pair on an eight high board than most of than your opponent if they open from early position. So those sort of boards are really good for you. Also, um, boards that contain a flush draw, like two-tone boards, even monotone boards. Um, The big blind defender generally will have more flushes than the opener because, again, you're going to be defending like 9-7 suited where maybe if the guy opens from early position, they wouldn't open that hand. And for sure, once you get down to like – say a queen do suited, they wouldn't open that from early position, but you might defend it. So basically anytime, anytime there's a possibility of small to medium flushes and straights on the board, that's generally going to be a good board for the big blind defender. And the times where the board doesn't contain small to medium flushes and straights, that's generally going to be good for the opener, especially ace high boards. So if, 
So most rainbow boards um, that have at least one big card on it, I'll say ace through queen. Um, the jack and the 10 kind of becomes like a um, flex card that could be in both ranges um, a good percentage of the time. But yeah, those big ace and king high boards are generally better for the um, pre-flop openers range. And Kim makes a good point here in the chat. I think we're mostly talking about single raise pots. Uh, and at this point where, for instance, there's an open in middle or late position and someone calls out of the blinds. But of course, this can come up all the time. Uh, if someone opens an early position and you call in late position, they're still going to have the ability to see bet. And that might change the board texture that you're looking at a bit because you won't be continuing with 8-5 offsuit as much in late position as you will in the blinds. But the same uh, principles would apply there. Eric, did you have a question? Yeah, <clears throat> I was kind of wondering. Um, so we have boards that, like you said, would favor the big blind um, so that we should be aggressively check raising or or being more aggressive on that. So I'm just wondering, how often do you you consider your specific hand to to um kind of regulate your frequency or do you just say hey this is my board even even though i have something that's not connecting with this i can represent it how how often do you do that that's a good question i would say generally you should let the board uh, regulate your frequencies and i kind of alluded to that um, by saying that you generally want to do this with backdoor equity. So if you have a hand that, although this is your board, but you didn't pick up any backdoor equity, you don't want to go too crazy in that spot. Because otherwise you end up playing like a maniac. Um, anytime <laughs> the board is zero, it's like you don't want your bluffing frequencies, frequencies to be too high. And also it's nice that sometimes when you're bluffing with hands with backdoor equity, you occasionally get there. So it's not, you know, you're not so bluff heavy on turns and rivers as well. So I would say it's very important to let the board regulate how often you um, make that play. Okay. So so it should be kind of a semi-bluff rather than a, a absolute cold stone bluff with nothing. Exactly. Semi-bluff. Okay. The only time I would say that I personally get out of line in this spot is when I have other factors that give me additional fold equity. So, like, if I'm up against a tight player, I might not need to regulate my ranges because, like, it, like I kind of want to play like a maniac against a tight player. <laughs> um, I just don't want to be out of line against someone who can exploit me for it. Or if I'm up just a regular type of player, but we're on the bubble, so I have, like, extra um, ICM pressure I can apply um, where anytime I expect to get more foes, I want to do more bluffing. But if I don't expect to get more folds, then I kind of want to keep my frequencies in line, my bluffing frequencies in line. And the best way to do that is to make sure your hands has some sort of coordination with the board. Cool. Thanks. So, Carlos, we get um, let's say we get a, a board that favors us, one of those sort of like low middle uh, runouts on the flop. And in sometimes we're going to have a hand like two pair. Uh, mm -hmm. because we called wide and we hit the eight five sometimes we're going to have a hand like uh, a pair plus draw with like you know eight seven or something like that sometimes we're going to have just a draw we want to kind of leverage the the bluffs in our opponent's c betting range by check raising like you're saying which is how we're going to kind of 
get some folds from better hands than ours even necessarily sometimes. Um, but we also want to be check raising with some value hands where we want them to continue and get paid. Is that uh, how do we how do we kind of how do you specifically decide, oh, this is in my value check raising range, this is in my call range, and this is in my bluff check raising range. Like from board to board, how do you decide in real time which action to take? What I generally do is I try to play against worse players than myself. Smart. What that generally means is that they're predictable. And so I kind of know what sort of player I'm I'm up against. So if I'm up against a player who bets too often, then I'm probably going to have a bluff heavy raising. Well, I shouldn't say if they bet too often and they fold too much to the raise, I'm going to have a bluff heavy raising range because it doesn't make sense to raise that sort of player with your value hands because you know they're just going to fold a lot. And if I'm up against a player who calls too much, then I'm going to be careful with how much I bluff. So maybe I just call more often with those sort of hands. But when you don't know, um, you want to kind of mix. So you're going to have like those two pairs you mentioned. Sometimes you call with them. Sometimes you raise with them. That's why if you ever see these in, these sort of hands in a solver, um, that's what the mix is for, is for when you don't know which way your opponent leans. And this is very important with your bluffs if you want to try to play theoretically sound. Um, because what you'll find is that aggressive players like myself sometimes take that that idea that Eric and I just talked about of um, raising with the backdoor draw hands and they do it too often to the point that without ever mixing, what happens is your calling range becomes too strong because you've raised with all your bluffing candidates. And what happens in this case is if your calling range is too strong and you face a bet, you call, and then the turn, if the draws get there on the turn, it's going to be hard for you to get value now because what are you bluffing with? Because you've raised all your bluffing candidates way on the flop. So that's a long way of saying if you're up against a player where you don't have a read on them and you don't know which way they're likely to lean, um, the way you fill out those three ranges you make, you mentioned is you basically just mix. You have strong hands in both ranges and you have weak hands in both ranges. And when in, and, and uh, as a rule, you try and exploit the tendencies of your opponent. Um, if yes. they overfold, you over bluff. If they overcall, you value raise more. Um, uh, but but when you don't know, that's where you have to take these these mixed strategies. Exactly. And this is where I differ from a lot of coaches in that I'm going to say the times you don't know should be rare. Right. Generally, I think too many people because, you know, basically what we're describing when we're talking about mixing is trying to approximate a GTO strategy. And a lot of people look at that as like the goal, like they want to play like a GTO robot. And they want to be able to mix and do all that stuff. I kind of look at that as like a last resort. Yeah. And I feel like either one or two things are happening. Either you're playing in games with players that are better than you, and that's a mistake. You shouldn't do that too often. Or you're playing in games with players who are worse than you that are making mistakes all over the place, but you're not paying attention to pick up on on those mistakes so that you'll know how to exploit them later. And you try to use GTO as like a laser way out. So instead of watching the hands you're not in to pick up reads, you can like, you know, read Twitter or something. So <laughs> I, I say too many people rely on GTO too often 
in soft games. So very rarely should you be up against people where you don't have an idea which way they're going to lean. Well, part of your, I know Kim has a question here, which we're absolutely going to get to here in a second, Kim. Um, I know, Carlos, you're really good at what I call like the non-sexy skills of poker, which are bankroll management and game selection, you know, like finding the right games to play in. Like you say, playing with players that are worse than you and not playing in spots that you're uncomfortable with. And it's just like you say, man, like you should be playing in games where people are making mistakes that you can recognize and exploit. Because that's exactly that's how you profit in poker. Um all right, uh, Kim, you had uh, something you wanted to get in here with? Yeah, and go backwards a little bit to sort of defending from the big blind. And we have uh, a board that favors the big blind, say, five, six, nine. And we had just have one eight or one seven in our hand. Uh, is this a good time to use a blocker as a check-raise bluff? Or as if it goes check-check, leading the turn on another low card? I would say both. Um, so if you face a bet, you can definitely consider raising with this hand. And I'm also going to say if it goes check, check, you should definitely bet the hand. So that one I wouldn't mix at all. I would always bet this when it goes check, check. But on the flop facing a bet, I'll kind of regulate how often I check raise with an eight. By I want something else to go with my eight. So the eight gives you a um, gut shot immediately. But it's nice if you have like, um, King eight suited and like three of your suits on the board. Like that is another reason to do it. Um, I think I'm going to do it more often with those sort of, sort of hands, but occasionally I will, um, do it even without the, um, backdoor flush draw as well. But yeah, um, I think it kind of goes back to just to, to mixing. Like you, you can raise with eight sometimes, but maybe not every time, but always lead when that turn goes check, check, when the flop goes check, check. What what if an ace comes on the turn? Then you don't necessarily lead, right? Um, I would say if the ace comes on the turn, you got two options here. You can either just check, and I think if you're checking, you're basically checking and giving up. Um, or you can go for a small bet where you're just targeting the weaker hands in your opponent's range because you you clearly recognize that. When the ace comes, it's better for your opponent. So they're going to have top pair a lot of the times, but not every time. So sometimes right. they're going to have whatever that second pair was on the board, which is now third pair. So maybe you want to bet something like quarter pot just to make them fold that sort of hand. But you don't want to go too crazy bluffing for a big size when the ace comes because big size bluffs are designed to get your opponent off of the top and middle of their ranges. And when that is top pair, that bluff isn't going to work. So this is when you switch and instead try to get them off of the worst hands in their ranges. And for that, you don't need a big size. Kim, anything to follow up there? No? No, no, that's good. Thanks. All right. Uh, my, my last question for this episode, Carlos, um, was about sizing. So that's a great segue that you gave me there. Um, let's say we're on that same board we called out of the big blind and our opponent C bets, and we're trying to decide whether to raise or um, check raise or call or fold, I guess is always an option too. Uh, mm -hmm. How important or how relevant is the size of the C bet? And how does that influence your decision? If it's a bigger bet, does that incline you to raise it more often or less often or call more often or fold more often? Uh, or is there even a general rule there? 
I would say generally the bigger bet should cause you to call more often. Hmm. Um, and the call as opposed to raise, uh, you can definitely consider, I should say call or fold more often, but you want to raise less often first versus the bigger bet as a general rule of thumb. Um, the smaller bets, I think I'm pretty much always going to raise those because they're not, they're not theoretically sound. So your opponent knows, or they should know that this board is better for your range than theirs. So what that means from their point of view is that they shouldn't bet very often. And when they do bet, they should choose a big size. So there's almost a telltale sign of a player who doesn't understand that if you face a small bet on a board that's better for your range than theirs. And the way you punish them for doing that is by raising a lot. So if you face, if you're in a big blind and you face a small bet on a board that's better for your range than your opponent's, now you can um, raise more often and maybe even raise with some of those um, um, no equity hands that Eric was talking about earlier, just to punish your opponent for oversee betting in this sort of situation. But the better players will know that they just don't get to bet as often on that board. And when they do bet, they bet the bigger size. And because they're checking back with some of their um, middling strength hands and some of their weaker hands, they're less vulnerable to a big raise. They're less vulnerable to a raise when they make the big size. So for that reason, you got to be selective with what hands you choose to raise that big bet with. And then conversely, uh, you're going to tell me that on drier, like ace high flops with not a lot of flush or straight potential and more, you know, one or two high cards as opposed to all low cards, um, our opponents are going to be c-betting at a higher frequency at a smaller sizing. And then let's just talk about that briefly. So let's say, you know, ace eight four board. Um, and this will come up in the hand that we're going to look at a little later on. Uh, we're not going to have as many natural semi-bluffs there, right? We're not going to have as many flush draws or straight draws. So how do we choose which hands to check raise with there? Or should we even be check raising as much? You should. You should be doing some check raising, not as much, but now you want to be, make sure you're first driven by your equity. So like ace eight four, um, you want to go with something like, um, it's escaping me right now. Does any I'm trying to think of is there any hand that's a double gutter on that board? Five six backdoor flash draw. What about that? Yeah, yeah, something like that for sure. You can use the double gutter sort of hands if that's even possible on this board. I'm having trouble visualizing right now. That one would be better if it's possible because now you have eight outs as opposed to just the the five. I mean the four with the um um gutter. Um, another sort of hand I think a lot of people miss in this situation. I don't know if this matters so much on the ace high board because your opponents are playing so many aces that it, I was going to talk about blockers, but it's hard to block when your opponents are playing everything from like ace deuce suited all the way up to ace king suited blocking some aces doesn't matter that much, but let's say you have a, um, king eight, four board a hand that will make a pretty good check raise, that will be something like queen jack suited with a backdoor flush draw. Because when you have queen jack, you block a significant percentage of the kings that your opponents will play. They're less likely to have king queen or king jack. 
and they're probably not going to have King Deuce suited anyway if they're opening from earlier position, unlike the Ace Deuce suited. So b- being able to block some kings um, carries more weight than um, blocking aces because your opponent plays fewer hands with a king in it. So um, I'm kind of, I would say, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess I'll just say that. So like uh, queen jack suited on a king eight four board, if you have um, three to a flush, um, that's a pretty uh, sexy um, check raising hand as well. Nice. All right. Well, um, so we're going to end the show here. And next week, we're going to talk about a hand uh, that Kim's going to chuckle because it's another hand I played in the main event this year. This is the last one we're doing on the show, though, I promise. Um, And this is a a slightly different scenario where we open and the opponent three bets us. And so when we get to the flop, all the ranges are a little tighter. It's not quite like that uh, big blind defense spot. So I'm looking forward to to getting into that. So, uh, so Carlos, one more time, where can our fans reach out to you if they want to make an impression or maybe make a connection and uh, take their game to the next level with your coaching services? Well, you can primarily find me on Twitter. I'm there all day, every day. Um, (laughs) Hip Hop 101 Trivia. Um, and if you can't remember that, you can just search Carlos Welch Twitter on Google and it'll be the first thing that pops up. And if you look in the bio there, you'll find my link to my free um, uh, uh, tiny, tinyurl.com website uh, for all my coaching information. And there's a few um, freebies there as well. Nice. And of course, uh, everyone should check out the Thinking Poker podcast. I don't say things like this lightly, but it's actually my favorite poker podcast. Uh, And I'm sure it is for a lot of other people as well. And you're doing a great job there, Carlos. You had some big shoes to step into, but man, you're knocking it out of the park. Uh, So thank you so much for all you do for the poker world. Thank you. All right. Well, and speaking of thanks, we're going to thank the Running Aces Hotel Racetrack and Casino and website Mark for Sean over at Website Amp and Kim and Eric and Carlos for joining the fun this week. And you, the listener, we'll talk again next week. Have a good one.